We're going to turn to God's Word now. Um, please will you t- turn up Psalm 19, which we were looking at last week. We're not going to read it um, because I'm going to refer to it through the talk. Um, but turn up Psalm 19, and uh, we're going to look at the first part of it. Neil helped us understand the second part of it last week. Let me pray together as we look at uh, Psalm 19 together. Heavenly Father, we believe that you are a speaking God. We thank you that last week we were learning more of what it means that you speak to us through your word. And I pray today that you would help us to see that you also speak to us through the amazing creation of your hands. So please help us as we look at the first half of Psalm 19 together. And may we stand in awe of a great God. Amen. I don't know if you um, know what a catechism is. Uh, I have one in my hand here. This is called the Shorter Catechism. A catechism is essentially a series of questions with answers that help teach Christian truth. Um, So in here, as an example, uh, one of the questions that comes in this, uh, what is faith in Jesus Christ? That's the question. The answer, faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he is offered to us in the gospel. So it's a question with an answer. Well, right at the beginning of this catechism, in the introduction, I'll read page one. It says this, and it will come up on the screen. What is the chief end of man? And the answer is, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Just take a minute and read that again. Just try and work out what it means. In the Old Testament, um, when we think about the word glory, in the Old Testament, the word glory really means, uh, it speaks of God's holiness, it speaks of God's weightiness, um, it speaks of how other he is, the fact that God is God and we are not. It speaks of his goodness, it speaks of his splendor. And the amazing thing about God's glory is that it's on display for us all to see. In Exodus chapter 30, you read here, the, the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The tabernacle was the tent which lay at the heart of God's people who were all camped around it. And it represented the place where God was. And God's glory filled this tabernacle. The tent was later replaced with the temple. But there was something about God's glory that meant that God's people couldn't just look at God. We read a little later on, God saying this, but you cannot see my face... For no one may see me and live. So there's something amazing about God's glory and his splendor. But he says, you can't just look at me because I am perfectly holy and you're not. And you can't just walk into my presence. Which is why in the tabernacle and in the temple there was this giant curtain separating where God's presence was from the rest of God's people. And they couldn't just wander in or they would die. In the New Testament, the word glory continues and it really speaks of God's reputation and God's revelation, how he reveals himself to us. Now, children can be very helpful in helping us understand God. Here's one child who asked the question, Dear God, are you rich or just famous? Dear God, are you real? Some people don't not believe it. If you are, you better do something quick. And then the last one. I can't read the yellow because it's not very good light there. But I'll read the other couple. God has a beard, it's white and grey hair and is bald in the middle. He's very big. God is a ghost. See, these are different opinions that people have of God. And children are always trying to work out who God is. And actually, it's not just children. We all do. The amazing thing about the Bible 
is that God wants us to understand who he is. And the, and the Bible is God's way of speaking out to us and saying, look at me. Look at me. Look at me in all my splendor and my glory. Aren't I incredible? That's unbelievably arrogant, isn't it? Look at me. I'm the greatest. I'm the best. I'm what you were created for. Look at me. It would be unbelievably arrogant to say that unless God was who he is. Uh, Let me ask you this question. Do you think God thinks he's better than he is? Is he bigger than he thinks he is? Is he better than he thinks he is? Is he holier than he thinks he is? God is not better than he thinks he is. God knows that he is the greatest. So it's not arrogant at all for him to say, look at me in all of my glory. But plenty of people through history have wanted to say that God is not great. Here's Christopher Hitchens a little while ago now, but he wrote this famous book, God is Not Great. Not really anything new. We read in Psalm 14, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Fool here, this isn't really a sort of disparaging term, kind of, oh, you're a fool, you don't believe in God. It's more the writer saying, with a real, real heartfelt weightiness, what a fool. There is no God, really? It's the writer almost commending God to the person who doesn't believe and saying, are you sure that you can see the created world and go, oh, there's no God? Are you sure? It was this chap, Friedrich Nietzsche, who famously declared God is dead. I've spoken before, it was at the evening service a few weeks ago, about um, the convenience of atheism. If you say there's no God, or say that God is dead, or say God is not great, that allows you to remove yourself from being accountable to him. So then you can live life however you want. You can be the one who sets your own morals. Well, I'm a good person. I'm not like X, I'm not like Y, I'm okay. Atheism is very convenient. But the Bible wants to cut into that and say unashamedly, God can be known. God can be known, God is great, and you and I were created to know him. So I want you to think of that phrase that came at the beginning. The chief end of mankind is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Now part of what it means to give God glory is to come to understand something of who he is and live in light of it. We can't know God totally. Fully, because God is God, our minds are finite, but we can know him truly, which means we can know what is true about him. So to give God glory is to recognize something that's true about God, and then to live our life in reflection of that truth. And when we live like that, to glorify God and then enjoy him forever. What what this truth is trying to help us to see is that when we give God glory, when we recognize who he is and he becomes the center of our life on which everything else is built, actually that is the place where you and I will most enjoy him. Glorifying God and enjoying God are actually the same thing. The more you give God the honor that he deserves, the more you'll enjoy him. And the more that you enjoy giving God glory, the more you want to give him glory. That's how the cycle works. And that's exactly what this truth is meant. There was an American uh, pastor in the 20th century called Tozer. Some of you might read some of his devotions. Uh, He famously said this. I think it's really helpful. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Just think about that. The truth he's trying to get at is that you and I were created with a heart 
that's meant to be focused on something. We were created to have affections, to love. And we can choose what we love. But if God is not our deepest affection, something else or someone else will be a deeper affection for us. And we'll center our heart and our affection on that person. Now, many, many people live in the world and they don't glorify God or enjoy him. One of the big reasons is probably because they are wanting to believe in a God who doesn't exist. They don't believe in the true God. See, if I, if I think in my mind about who I think God is, or the God that I want to serve, why is he never, ever, ever going to satisfy me? Because he doesn't exist. The God that I've imagined doesn't exist, so he'll never satisfy. But the God who's revealed himself will satisfy if we come to know him, because that is who he actually is. Well, this psalm will help us, because last week we were seeing that God's word, the Bible, is one way that we can see God as he speaks to us. We also see in the first part of our psalm here that God speaks to us through creation. Last week we saw the kind of cry of the creator through his word. We're going to see again the cry of the creator, but this time carried through creation. Have a look at uh, verse 1 of Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. And uh, Nathan's helpfully already with the children helped us to understand a bit about what it means to declare, to pour forth. If you read that verse in the message translation, I think it's actually really helpful. Uh, It says this, God's glory is on tour in the skies. God craft is on exhibit across the horizon. Madam Day holds classes every morning. Professor Knight lectures every evening. The point is, creation speaks. And it's always speaking. And it's shouting out to us, there is a God and he is great. Just have a look at verse 1, 2 and a couple of verses after. Notice just four little things. Notice the little paradox. Verse 2 speaks of creation that pours pours forth speech. But then in verse 3 it says, it has no speech. I wonder if that puzzles you. How can creation speak but not speak? Well, obviously, when I see a rainbow in the sky or a beautiful sunset, it's not going to speak to me with words like I'm speaking to you, but it still speaks, doesn't it? What does it say? God is creative. God is great. God is big. Notice the totality of what God has created and how it speaks. It speaks here, verse 1, of... Uh, the heavens declaring the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. The writer's probably going all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The idea is that the creation of God in its totality speaks. I read this week of, um, during the French Revolution where certain people were sort of trying to ban religion uh, and any faith in God. One French revolutionist um, declared this to a Christian peasant. He said, I will put all your steeples down a reference to destroying their churches, so that you will no longer have any object to remind you of your old superstition. Do you know what the Christian peasant said? But you cannot help leave us the stars. You could destroy this church. You could stop this church being built in Niger. But you can't take the stars away. You can't stop the sunsets. 
God will keep speaking even when people try to suppress the truth of who he is. That peasant said something incredibly profound to this very arrogant man. Notice too how this speech of creation is irrepressible. It says in verse 2, creation pours forth speech. Verse 3, it speaks of the voice that's going out. And notice the influence or extent of it. It goes out where? Verse 4, over all the earth to the ends of the world. C.S. Lewis was once speaking to a group of atheists in Oxford and he said this, we may ignore but we can nowhere evade the presence of God. You can ignore God, but you can't get away from his presence. Why? Because he created everything around you. He created you. And you'll never escape him. Paul declared back in Romans chapter 1, since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, that's in part speaking of his glory, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. What, what the writer's getting at here is there is truth about God that's been revealed, but that truth has to be responded to. And so as we look at the rest of this psalm, the cry of the Creator does carry through creation, and what he's doing is calling you and me to cry out to him. I don't know if you notice in our psalm, and Neil looked at this, if you look down to verse 11 and verse 14, towards the end of the psalm, speaking of a God who speaks through his word, through creation, it says, verse 11, by God's speech, by them is your servant warned, in keeping them there is great reward. And then right at the end, the psalmist wants to respond to the God who speaks, and he says, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Then if you notice in this psalm, it says that day and, day and night, creation pours forth speech. It pours forth knowledge. Now, what is that knowledge? Of course, in part, it's knowledge of the creation. God has given us his creation to enjoy and to explore and to understand. But that knowledge here isn't just of God's creation. It's more of the God of creation. So I think what happens here in this psalm is, as the psalmist is saying, the heavens declare the glory of the Lord, what he's also doing is inviting you and I to join in. So the whole point is, we don't see a beautiful sunset. We don't see a rainbow and go, wow. We do that, but we go further. We go, wow, and God made that. Isn't he good? The psalm has been written to draw us in so that we praise with the psalmist. Just as the heavens declare the glory of God, will you, will I? But here's a little puzzle for you. Why verse 4 to 6, of all creation, why does the writer particularly focus in on the sun? <coughs> Let me read from verse 4. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. Now just think about that. God has pitched a tent for the sun. Just like you and I might pitch a tent on a campsite. What that means is I find a place that's soft and flat and not wet and I put my tent there. The psalmist says God has placed the sun. Just think about that. The sun in its enormity. The sun and God just picks it up and places it in the sky. That is utterly mind-blowing. 
And it says, verse 5, the sun is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run its course. The sun is majestic. You can't get away from its light. You can't get away from its heat. Just like on a wedding day when the groom appears and he's meant to look his very best. And then verse 6, the sun rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. That's not just biology, that is God ordained. I like to think, if God is a God who can just place the sun in the sky, I like to think of God who picks up the sun in the morning and lifts it through the sky and then places it the other end of the earth the next day. Only God can do that. Think about the significance of the sun. The sun gives us our seasons. The seasons give us beauty, which we can enjoy. Uh, the sun gives us day and night. The sun gives us light, not just during the day, but also during the night. Why? Because the moon doesn't emit its own light. The sun reflects off the moon and the moon gives us light. The sun causes photosynthesis. It causes things to grow. And many of those things that grow, we enjoy and we eat. The things that grow and eat give off oxygen, which we need to breathe. What does the sun do? It drives the ocean currents that moves heat around the planet so ecosystems can thrive. The sun is at the very center of God's creation. And God just placed it in the sky. Why does the writer draw particular attention to the sun here? I think he's trying to say, look, you and I are completely and utterly dependent on the sun for your life. But far more than that, you're completely dependent on me, God, for your life. It has puzzled me. Why the writer, just have a look, verse 6 and 7. Why is there this sort of seamless transition from speaking of the creation that speaks to suddenly speaking about God's word that speaks? Why no other shift or explanation? I think it's because the writer is saying, look, just as easily as creation can speak, so God can speak for his word. Just as easily as God speaks for his word, so creation can speak. Together, the sun which you and I are dependent on that gives external light and God's word that we're dependent on that gives internal light come together to help us to see who God is. And both are gifts from him. Both are gifts that he wants us to enjoy. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And the more you give God glory for who he is, the more you'll enjoy him. And the more you enjoy him, the more you'll want to give him glory. So as we come to a close and reflect on something that's going to come on the screen shortly, let's see in Psalm 19, particularly the first half, the cry of the creator, which carries through creation and calling you and I to cry out to God. God is a very, very big God. But the amazing truth is that he is also a God who draws close to those who are hurting. And he's also a God who wants to be known. So can I ask you, please, please don't leave church this morning. If you don't know him, please chat with someone who's sitting next to you and find out how you can. Because the God who speaks wants to know you. Should we pray together? Heavenly Father, indeed, how great you are. We pray this morning would have helped us to marvel at who you are, to remember how big you are, but also to know that you're a God who's not a distant great God, but a very close great God. So would you draw close to us today?
And would you help us this week to live our lives to the glory of your name? And as we do that, would we enjoy you? O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name above all the earth. Amen.